Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. Saqib Ali is producing uh, this episode, and... Uh, the topic is pretty obvious, or at least the main point of focus, uh, the ATP Finals. And uh, Novak Djokovic wins yet again. He adds even more uh, to his bulging trophy case. Uh, he picks off nearly all of the big prizes in men's tennis for yet another year. You know, you had Carlos Alcaraz at Wimbledon, but the rest of the big, the really big trophies, the really big events, Novak Djokovic won them. This is who he is. This is what he does. He continues to do it for yet another year. He continues to set the bar very high. He continues to hold himself uh, well above his peers. Now, Yannick Sinner did beat him in the round robin uh, portion of the week, but you know, in the rematch on Sunday, was there was there anyone who really felt that Sinner was going to win a second time in a few days uh, against Djokovic? It's not ordinarily done, and that that trend, that reality, uh, didn't change uh, on Sunday in Italy. Uh, a home field advantage was not enough for Sinner. Novak Djokovic stands alone again uh, at the ATP Finals, uh, put, putting to bed another season uh, of men's tennis. I know we have the uh, you know the the quote unquote Davis Cup, you know, in its uh, bastardized. Uh, version, but really the ATP Finals, the last really crowning moment of the men's tennis season, and and to make sense of this, and also look ahead to 2024, we have our in-house consultant, analyst, writer, uh, and hey, he recently turned out a deep dive on Grigor Dimitrov and the value of 400 match wins, putting Dimitrov against Tomas Birdik and other uh, players from different eras, uh, uh, trying to assess the value of a win. There are charts. There are graphs. Uh, it's an Andrew Burton deep dive research special. So we invite you to, uh, to read that particular article at tennisaccent.com. And so we and and before I invite Andrew back on, also a reminder, if you haven't uh, caught Sakib's podcast with Yvonne Lendl, well, hey, that is available. Uh, so, that's a, a must listen podcast. So you want to get to Sakib's podcast with Yvonne Lendl, but also Andrew Burton's deep dive on Grigor Dimitrov and ATP Generations. Andrew Burton, welcome back to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Hey, thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks for having me. All right. So we want to, we want to uh, uh, have everybody to read your, your piece, but now we turn to um, uh, the review of the ATP finals. And so, what you know, a Andrew? You you keep notes. You keep a copious uh, notebook. Like the Andrew notebook is a constant reference point in our conversations. Obviously, sometimes you'll look at a match and say match over. You'll or you'll you'll write match over in your notebook. But you had many other notes uh, from this past week in Italy. So, what are the foremost items from your notebook over the past week? The Djokovic Championship, Sinner making the final and the other things that you saw from the past week in Italy? So the the World Tour Finals, the year-end championships, there's, you know, historically, uh, I think some people have seen this as a kind of a glorified exhibition, but I think in the last 15 years or so, that sense has been put to bed, at least for me. I thought some of the tournaments... They can be a little bit uh, hit and miss. You sometimes get players coming in who who are carrying injuries, and we can we can get to that in in a little while. Um, but you 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 have some players, you know, having scores of six two six one against them. So a lot of the matches are not competitive. This tournament was different for me. I thought it was a really enjoyable tournament to watch. A lot of the matches were competitive. It was played on apparently the fastest surface of the year, 42 court speed out of 50. Uh, is that good or bad? Well, your mileage may vary. 
But I thought the, the matches were really interesting. They rewarded good serving. They rewarded going for your shots, but they also allowed players to um, play out some, some decent rallies. And I thought we had several good matches. Um, so just just grading the tournament as enjoyable tennis, how did you see it, Matt? Uh, I mean, I saw it along similar lines. I think, you know, the, the court speed that you referenced, at, you know, I think there's a general agreement that uh, the, the the hard courts on tour, you know, they're generally medium paced, um, slow to medium pace, and you get these grinding long rallies. And, of course, you know, it's hard to look past uh, uh, the Cincinnati final, you know, with uh, – uh, Alcaraz and Djokovic just locking antlers and tra- trading blows uh, f- for nearly four hours. And, you know, to me, d- having a, a tour, you know, the tour is mostly hardcore based uh, to begin with. So having some significant differentiations in speed among the various uh, hardcore events, like that's that's a that's not just a good thing. It's a necessary thing. Uh, that these players should be getting tested on noticeably different uh, speeds, and, and we had that in turn. Uh, so I, I think that did uh, lend something positive uh, to what we saw over the past week. Right, and then when you get to the um, you know the the players who competed there, um, you know I've broken them into three groups there are the 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 gold stars or gold and silver stars the players who made the semi-finals who actually were the the top four ranked players coming in um so novak carlos daniel and yannick um deservedly got through there might have been other players who, who who'd made it through there was a little bit of uh is is yannick going to do anything unusual given that he's qualified to to see that Novak doesn't uh become one of the semi-finalists he didn't he uh he played it out and came top of his group so those are the stars there are three also rands uh two players who didn't play three matches Stefanos Tsitsipas came in carrying an injury and made it three games into his second match Apparently, according to the tennis TV commentators, didn't look that great in his first match, although I hadn't picked that up. So Sitsipas, you know, gets an incomplete. Hubert Hercatch um, gave Novak a hit around uh, for three sets, uh, played one match, um, got a decent match fee and gave a good account of himself. And then Andre Rublev uh, didn't win a set, played three matches, I think was frustrated because I don't think he felt that he was playing his best level of tennis, but he also wasn't playing his worst level of tennis. It just didn't happen for him. So those are my three also rounds. And then you've got two players who kind of made it interesting, Holger Rune and uh, Sasha Zverev. Uh, Each of them might've qualified. Um, Zverev beat Alcaraz in the first uh, match in his round robin group, so had a chance to qualify, but but didn't make it through. I thought the the semifinals uh, were potentially interesting matches. Uh, the Sinner Medvedev match went three sets and could have gone either way. Sinner was a deserved winner there. Um, the Alcaraz Djokovic match was something that I think many of us were looking forward to and a you know, potential rematch of some of the the matches they've already played this year. And Djokovic kind of said, yes, that's nice, Carlos. You're, you're coming along really well. Um, thanks very much. And I'll see you next year. Then went on to play Yannick Sinner in the, the final and pretty much did the same to Yannick. So you've got possibly two young crown princes Sinner and Alcaraz and Djokovic as the king. And as you know, if you come for the king, you better not miss. 
How much uh, would you say that uh, you know the scheduling and the overall match schedules uh, in this latter portion of the season had an impact on on, on these results? Because Djokovic, after the U.S. Open, laid low for for a while, and then like he made his return, uh, I believe in Bercy, if I'm not mistaken, and and uh, whereas Alcaraz and, and so also Sinner, like Sinner was trying to make a push. Uh, upward uh, in in the rankings, and you know he had to pull out of Bercy partly because of the scheduling. Like he had to play that really late night uh, match. He was you know brought on court very late, so he didn't play the next day uh, when he was scheduled much earlier in the day. But like he had been accumulating mileage in some of the smaller tour events while Djokovic was resting, and and you know Alcaraz handling this level of workload and this level of visibility in 2023, it seemed as though his fuel tank was never the same uh, after Cincinnati, really. How much do you think that should be viewed as any kind of uh, factor in in what we saw the past week? I'm not really putting it that high. I think we have seen players come into the, the tournament in the past you know, with a, with a completely empty tank. And the player who was nearest to that, I think, was Tsitsipas. And, and I think there's some question about whether Stefanos really should have started the tournament, given that he was carrying an injury coming into the tournament. I don't think, you know, all the players are individual contractors, so I don't think we can reprove them for trying to play there. I gather that uh, Taylor Fritz, who was an alternate, was also having difficulty with an abdominal strain. But it's not unusual for players at the end of a fairly long season to be nicked up. Alcaraz didn't play a, an enormous amount of tennis coming in. Uh, he he actually lost in his first round match in Paris to Safiulin. So he, at his age... Um, he ought not to have been feeling the miles. The question is, 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 is he feeling something else? As you said, Matt, after Cincinnati, that seemed to mark the point at which his, his season it didn't come to an end, but, but he wasn't the player that he had been in the, in the first half of the season. And there's a, there's a fellow from Spain who often did well in the first half of the season and never did that well at the World Tour Finals, so he played there pretty often. That name will come to me. For some reason, it eludes me at the moment. But anyhow, is Alcaraz potentially going to be a, a player who, you know, turns on the afterburners early in the year, uh, had a fantastic Wimbledon, and then didn't manage to, uh, you know, make the second half of the season light up? Similarly, Holger Rune. There was some question about whether he would actually make it to the, the tour finals because he, he was looking a bit ropey in the second half of the season. He did make it. He he, he made a decent fist of, of the event. But I think looking to 2024, one of the questions that, that we'll have about you know, particularly Runa and Alcaraz is, are they going to get better at... Um, being able to manage their schedule, being able to manage their body so that they can become consistent players going deep in tournaments throughout the year. One question I think we have to ask about Novak Djokovic and, and, you know, for Djokovic fans listening in, this is not meant as kind of like an implied or thinly veiled criticism or a way of undermining him because like there's a bookend quality to this, Andrew, that a lot of people will will have thought and will continue to think that when Roger Federer, you know, became Roger Federer, when he became an elite tennis player in 2003, 2004, for the for those few years from 2003 through 2006, with the exception of course of Nadal, uh, a lot of people think that Federer feasted on a very weak uh ATP tour. Uh and like that's been a conversation point to for for people who are you know like they you know they respect Federer's achievements but they think that in those years that the tour was just a little bit too easy for him and 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 so when when looking at Federer's overall accomplishments many people will say well but he didn't have a strong ATP tour 
uh, at the beginning. And then when Djokovic came along and Murray came along, uh, it was much harder for Federer. Like he collected his so many trophies before Djokovic and Murray rose to prominence. So I'm just trying to provide that bookend dimension to what we're seeing now with Djokovic, you know, with, with Alcaraz getting sticking his foot in the door at Wimbledon. But for the most part, this was st- still another relatively dominant year for Novak Djokovic. And people will say that in this context, obviously, you know, when Federer was doing what he did from 03 to 06, you know, he was still a pretty young buck. He was in his physical prime uh, in his in his early to mid-20s. What Djokovic is doing now, he's doing in his mid-30s. But there's still that sense for a lot of people, Andrew, as you're well aware, that Djokovic is mopping up on what a lot of people think is a not-that-great ATP tour. You look at guys like Tsitsipas and Zverev, guys who can't turn the corner. You know, Dominic Team, a shadow of his former self due to injuries and all the things that have ha- happened to him uh, in recent years. Uh, Danil Medvedev still not able to win a, a second major championship. Yannick Sinner still young and like his career is going well, like it's on a really good trajectory, but he's still young, still learning. People will say that Djokovic is, you know, feasting on an ATP tour that isn't quite as good as it as it was. And Federer was feasting on an ATP tour roughly 20 years ago that wasn't as good as what it eventually became. What what is relevant and what is, you know, junk food in terms of comparing 2003 through 2006 Federer with what we're seeing now in late stage Djokovic? Well, I think that the when we were talking about um, setting up this podcast, we were talking about sort of aiming for about roughly an hour. And uh, you, <laughs> you, you, you've, you, you've, you've opened up a subject that, you know, we, we could spend the whole hour digging into this maybe at a, at a later stage maybe sort of christmas time we we can we can give it a lash um i think that the uh i think one thing i do know that federer himself talked a lot about particularly later on in his career was you know, how good the opposition was i mean he obviously had a, a you know, 20 years worth of uh, 20 years plus experience of playing at the upper levels of the ATP tour. So he was able to compare players across the generations. And I think he would say of the, the, the players that are playing now, you know, they're not chopped liver. Uh, Daniel Medvedev is you know, stylistically unusual. Um, but I don't think you walk onto the court against Daniel Medvedev and think he's an easy out. Similarly, uh, Andy Roddick, I was just taking a look at, as I do, uh, the the win-loss statistics. And, you know, for his career, Andy Roddick is round about 75% for his entire career which included that early era, but it also included the the rise of the generation that came after his and Federer's generation. Um, now, Medvedev is, I think, something like 71%. Uh, Zverev is something like 70%. Kei Nishikori, I think, something like 67% or so, one loss for the career. You look at some of the players who, who came up with Federer, uh, Leighton Hewitt, uh, Marat Safin. You know, I I think that those guys would be a bit unhappy about being put in a box. Similarly, uh, you've got the younger group coming in behind. We we've got the three players uh, who made the World Tour finals. You've got uh, Felix Ogialiasim. You've got um, Lorenzo Mazzetti. You've got some some really interesting up and coming players. You've had players who I think in in sort of the who should have been developing in the two thousand and eleven two thousand twelve timeframe. As you know, I can bore for England on this topic, but you've you've got players who were born 
in the, the late 1980s, early 1990s, who never gave the same level of competition, I would say, consistently as the players who were the, the, the five years or so before them. So not just the Murray, um, Djokovic, Nadal, but Del Potro, Berdic, Songa, um, uh, David Ferrer. Uh, so there was something I, I, I would say of a golden ATP era between, you know, let's say 2008 and 2016. Uh, does it mean that this is a tissue paper era now? No. And it wasn't before. We will have, a, I think, a standalone episode in December. It's really a great off-season uh, conversation to have, but definitely wanted just to get a brief uh, Notes answer on, on that question because it's certainly something that global tennis fans are definitely thinking about. All right, let's review Novak Djokovic's 2023 season. What, uh, what are some of the main takeaways, memories, observations about not not just what you saw, but what you think this this season means in a larger context. It's an astonishing season, isn't it? Yes. Um, you know, four major finals, uh, World Tour final, age thirty six. Um, just just remarkable, and uh, his his one loss record on the year is one fifty five loss six. And I, I, I just happened to glance before uh, I started talking with you at the one lost record of a player who had a stellar 2017 at age 36 or 35, 36, one Roger Federer, who we, we also talked about, who went 54 and 5 uh, in 2017. So Djokovic, 55 and 6 this year. So the argument that that Novak did well because he you know only showed up at a few tournaments, I don't think that holds water. I think that he he played the tournaments that he wanted to play, except when he couldn't we We have to remember that it was still the case that uh, for the the two masters hard courts at the start of the season, Indian Wells and Miami. He wasn't eligible to to come to the United States because of travel restrictions related to uh, the coronavirus pandemic that was still in force at the time. So he 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 might have added a couple of masters, or at least one masters to his his resume in 2023. So you know, just a fabulous season. Uh, you know, taking a look at the Australian Open, he he uh, he pretty much cruised through that. He 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 dropped one set, and I think it's going to be a a long term trivia question: Who did Novak Djokovic lose a set to at the Australian Open? Uh, and the answer is Enzo Kwaku. I'm pronouncing that horribly. Ranked 191 in the world, who won a tiebreak set from Novak in the second round. But everything else, he 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 just cruised. Uh, then his clay season looked a little bit ragged uh, until he got to Roland Garros. Uh, there were two astonishingly competitive sets in the semi-final against Alcaraz, and unfortunately, Carlos started cramping up and you know was was just playing with severe body cramps for the the third and fourth sets did not retire but they weren't competitive and then played Kasparud who who remains a bit of an enigma to me uh I didn't have Rude winning a set he didn't win a set so Novak was already two uh majors into uh, a career grand slam Wimbledon uh Hubi Hercats gave him a, you know, a, a testing uh, over four sets of, of big serving. Novak came through that. The final against Alcaraz uh, would be, I think, up there potentially for one of the matches of the year, along with another match that they played uh, at Cincinnati. They they split those two matches. I think if uh, if Novak was was asked if he 
be given a chance to do over, he'd probably have taken the Wimbledon and not the Cincy, but that's the way it turned out, that uh, the only major he lost uh, was in the final in five sets to Alcaraz. And then uh, in the US Open, he had a bit of a wobble to his con- his countryman, Jerry, uh, but then cruised after that. So, the you know, what's the expression from Thunderdome? Um, you know, two men entered, Novak Djokovic leaves. I think pretty much 2023, most of the time it was like that. No question about it. So, you know, as we look at 2024 for Djokovic, I mean, look, like he, the guy's winning trophies left and right. And there was a serious chance, significant chance that he was going to win the Grand Slam uh, this year if he had been able to win that Wimbledon final uh, against Alcaraz. So he came extremely close. And it's yet another year in which Djokovic has gone 27 uh, and one at the majors. He's now done that multiple times. And so like, obviously it's out there, but you know, as he gets into his late thirties, if you know, he loses half a step and father time uh, gets a few more nibbles uh, at him. Like, it's not as though it would be like a failure in any, in any meaningful sense, because he already is the major championship uh, title leader, he already can. You know, he, can, he continues to stack one epic accomplishment on top of the other. So if suddenly you know he he uh, doesn't have the same uh, stamina or durability, like no one's going to hold it against him. So just want to kind of make that clear in terms of expectations. That like if Novak Djokovic doesn't live up to quote unquote expectations in 2024, it won't be any kind of demerit in any meaningful sense on him, his legacy, and, and what he's accomplished. So just with that kind of uh, uh, note or explainer out of the way, what should we be looking for in terms of Djokovic trying to maintain this, this incredible standard of excellence? What will enable him to maintain that? And what are you going to be looking for in terms of you know how, how he's going to be able to uh, stay on top of the ATP tour to the extent that he has? Well, I guess that he, he knows what he's doing. Uh, assuming that he goes deep in the Australian Open, and he's he's done that several times before, you know, is he going to play one of Dubai or Acapulco and then both of the the hard court masters? I'd be kind of surprised if he if, if he tries to do uh four hard court tournaments at the start of the year. Um the the clay season, you'd think again possibly try and play Monte Carlo, Rome, maybe a home tournament in Serbia. But try to get to Roland Garros fresh. Um, Wimbledon, he's he's won that quite a few times, and then you're into the the hard courts, possibly again Cincinnati or Canada. Likely to pick one of them rather than both of them. The U.S. Open, and then we'll see what the the remainder of the season looks like. So. On, on a scheduling basis, I would be surprised if Novak is playing more than about 65 matches. And obviously, if he's playing 65 matches, he's likely winning a lot of them. Um, in the you know, Federer in the year after 2017, which was his stellar comeback year, winning two majors, won the Australian Open at the start of 2018, um, and then didn't have a successful arrest of 2018, but finished it 50 and 10. So that's 60 matches. So if, if, if Novak's having a really successful season and there's no reason to expect at the moment that he won't have uh, anything less than a successful season, assuming that he stays healthy, assuming that he, he doesn't pick up a nick or a twinge here and there, you know, you're, you're thinking something on the lines of somewhere between 60 and 70 matches. And, um, you know, so long as he stays healthy, um, there'll be more silverware. 
All right, let's uh, review Carlos Alcaraz's season. Obviously, the 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 Wimbledon final uh, is the match that we're all going to remember, but it's also very much worth noting, uh, as I'm sure you'll you'll want to discuss that that Wimbledon final flowed from the Roland Garros semifinal, and Alcaraz just made all sorts of adjustments, physically, mentally, tactically. Uh, in the course of a few weeks, basically, or, you know, basically one month, you know, the Wimbledon final coming uh, roughly one month after the Roland Garros semifinal. And just, you know, a young athlete being able to, you know, he watches his body fail him uh, uh, in, in that Roland Garros semifinal. And then he's able to then, you know, triumph over tennis's ultimate Ironman Djokovic in a five-set major final on the most famous court in tennis. Obviously, there were many more components uh, to Alcaraz's season, but really the, those moments in Paris uh, and, and at Wimbledon are, are going to be the moments we're going to be talking about for a long time. And, and like I, I'm hearing myself say this, oh, by the way, we had that epic Cincinnati uh, final as well. So really, Alcaraz you know, at, at, in Paris, Wimbledon, and then in Ohio, uh, three, three moments that tennis fans are going to be, uh, discussing for a very, very long time to come. Uh, and then we have a whole season wrapped around that. So your, your observations from those three moments and the rest of Alcaraz's very memorable 2023 tennis season. Yeah. If you, you know, if you, you pick those three, moments which were three out of the four times that he he played Novak this year with Novak winning three and and losing one they're all different aren't they um the Cincinnati match which I'm expecting um could be wrong but I'm expecting that 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 many people will have it as as their match of the year um it was kind of an odd match because it turned into a classic in the third set it was a monstrous scrap novak served the match at 5-4 and and was broken back and they went to a final set tiebreak alcaraz had a match point in the second set tiebreak which Novak won nine seven. It was a very very hot day in Cincinnati, and Cincinnati is not just hot; it's humid as well. And one thing I'd forgotten before the the Tennis Channel replayed the final uh, a couple of days ago was that Novak looked out on his feet in the second set, had started well, lost the first set seven five, and then was apparently just losing physical control himself. And the the two Tennis Channel commentators, Jim Courier and uh, Jason Goodall, thought that Novak might be on the brink of retirement. And they were saying they were, they were astonished that, it, that he was still upright. So that, that match is, you know, not quite... Um, you know, it was it was the final set match. The Wimbledon match was a final set match, but it, it was an odd match in the way that it that it that it really played out. The Wimbledon final, uh, Novak probably isn't seeing that swinging volley uh, in the final set in his sleep, given all of the the nice things that have happened to him in. 2023, but uh, would he have won in uh, New York if he did won that match? Who knows? But you can argue he was one shot away from a calendar Grand Slam. Uh, the the Roland Garros semi final, I, I I do find it a little bit unusual that a a player of Alcaraz's age and fitness had the the cramping issue because of emotional energy in the early in the third set that the intensity of, of the match was so much that 
not so much in the the fourth or the fifth set, but in the third set, he he had those issues. But then somebody pointed out to me that Guillermo Coria, in his match against Gaston Gaudio, suffered similarly and had all kinds of issues in the third and fourth set, but was up uh, two sets to love in that match and had match points in the fifth set, but couldn't do it and um, never went on to himself win a, uh, win a, a major tournament. So, you know, those three matches were uh, interesting matches, but very, very different matches in 2023. Um, I think what a lot of people possibly forget for Alcaraz, and, you know, he's finished number two in the rankings. So obviously, you know, it wasn't a, just a one tournament uh, or a two tournament season. He won six tournaments, including two Masters. Um, and I think he was... Uh, was he uh, runner-up or did he make the semifinals at uh, at Miami? Did he lose the semifinals to Sinner? I'm, I'm trying to remember. Uh, so I believe so. So win six and and lose two finals. It's not a bad season. And Alcaraz, he's seen, I think, as having one of the best teams around him. Uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero is charting his progress, um, winning uh, two separate majors uh, at age 20, um, the US Open last year, Wimbledon this year. He's got to be looking forward to 2024. He didn't get to play at the Australian Open because of injury uh this year so he he'll come into the australian open hopefully fit and and raring to go can he manage his own schedule better can he you know possibly play 75 matches and and win a bunch of those he he's one of the most exciting talents that we've seen uh in the last 10 years possibly matched by one or two of uh his contemporaries who we'll talk about hopefully in, in the next few minutes or so. I think he's still two to three years off of, off of his peak. Um, he's not yet an elite server. He's got some issues when he's pulled wide on the forehand side, but my, my word, when he's 25, he's going to be a handful. I mean, do you think like most of the whole ball game with Carlos is the serve or, or is there another non-serve component that's, if not equally important, close to being equally important in terms of elevating him to an even higher plateau? I think that the, 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 there isn't a huge hole in his game. And, you know, again, you go back um, 20 years or so, the knock on Federer, who was was a half decent player in two thousand three two thousand four, was that his backhand wasn't that strong, and he used to say that uh, his uh, his peers improved his backhand by always hitting to it. And when he played Nadal, the story was that Nadal could get the high left-handed topspin forehand to to Federer's backhand, and and set up patterns that were very positive for him I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that Alcaraz has as many holes in his game or, or, or any big holes in his game the thing that I, that I sometimes see is is he getting the balance right between full out aggression and setting up points so that he's a 75% chance to win and he wins three quarters or above of those points when he, he's in good position to do so. He, he, he's still so young. He spent so few seasons at the top level of the tour that, again, there's, there's just this seasoning question and, and, and being under, able to understand when he comes against a Morosian or he comes up against a Safulin and he doesn't have his A game, how does he win those matches when he doesn't have his A game? 
All right, let's talk about some of the other ATP players that, that you that you wanted to uh, mention. And I think we have to start with the the semifinalists uh, at, at the uh, ATP World Tour uh, finals, or or actually not the semifinalists, but the men who uh, met in the other semifinal. You know, Djokovic and Alcaraz in one, and Yannick Sinner and Daniil Medvedev in the other. And I think we have to discuss in particular. Yannick Sinner getting on a run, not just in the second half of the uh, of the season, but specifically getting on a run against Daniil Medvedev. What a, what would you assign to Yannick Sinner's ability to beat Daniil Medvedev with regularity? Something that uh, you know, like that is a conspicuous pattern, and it's obviously going to be a talking point as we go into the off season, and then we enter the twenty twenty four ATP season. What would you? Uh, uh, assess in terms of uh, how Sinner's been able to consistently get get the upper hand against Medvedev, and do you see this uh, uh, continuing, or do you think that Medvedev is more likely to find ways to turn this thing around next year? Um, hard to say just for that particular rivalry. Um, the the matches that they played. Um, they were pretty close matches. Uh, it was three sets uh, last week. It was three sets in the final in Vienna. Uh, Yannick won the, the Beijing final in, in two tiebreak sets. So, you know, I'm not, I, I don't think Daniel's going away and shaking his head and saying, you know, I'm not going to be able to beat this guy in the future. Uh, Daniel won reasonably comfortably in Miami when they they played against each other there in the final. So no, I don't. I you know I don't think you know Daniel's checking the drawer every week and saying you know am I going to get Yannick uh, early on? I, I guess if they're three and four, they're they're probably going to be on. Uh, opposite sides a, a fair amount of the time for a while until one of them gets a bit higher or, or gets a bit lower. So I I don't think uh, Daniel is crying in his vodka about that. Yannick impressed me all week, obviously up until the final, with a winning mentality. I thought I thought he looked really good, and as as the home kid. He had a tremendous amount of uh, support from from the crowd, and really lived up to it. Really, really earned his way into the final. And I spent a lot of time. I actually did something which I hardly ever do, which is I charted every point in that final. Uh, and I was ready to come into this uh, conversation, Matt, saying that there were there were two things that that Novak did better on the day. He served better and he returned better. Um, however, having charted the final, um, he basically hit his forehand better. He hit his backhand better. I think he hit his volleys better. Um, I'm not sure he hit his overheads better, but Yannick was comprehensively outplayed. And on the Sunday, um, I came away my instant reaction to them to the match was that Yannick Sinner didn't turn up and he, he looked extremely disconsolate at the handshake at the net, but having, having rewatched the match, I don't think it was so much a thing of he, he didn't turn up. I think he, he came to the door and found that Novak had locked it. Let's talk a little bit more. We'll get back to Daniil Medvedev in, in a bit, but with Yannick Sinner, I mean, a fascinating season in terms of you know there were so many wrenching and difficult moments I think of you know his early exit at the French also you you mentioned how well he used the home crowd in Turin a far cry from how he was able to use another home nation crowd in Rome where he made an early exit I mean he he really struggled for a period of time uh and, and I know that those two matches that I just referenced uh, Rome and, and also Roland Garros were on clay. Um, but, you know, like Sinner's no chump on clay, like and, and being uh, Italian, like you're, you're de- you definitely have a lot of exposure to that surface. So he's not really a fish out of water there. Um, but obviously 
something really clicked in, in the second half of the season. You know, he wins the, the championship uh, in Canada. I think getting to the Wimbledon semifinals was good just because like he never had to answer that question again. When are you going to make a major semifinal? When are you going to make a major semifinal? So we got there. Like he checked that box and that certainly relieved uh, some pressure. Um, but then, you know, it just he's, he just played a lot of steady winning tennis and he stack, kept stacking top 10 wins one after the other. And he's able to walk away from, from this uh, Turin ATP finals, not with the ultimate trophy, but he did walk away with a win uh, over Djokovic in an extremely successful week. So, you know, in May of this year, Andrew, we were wondering if Yannick Sinner was ever going to turn the corner. Uh, and at the end of the year, we're looking at, you know, hey, he really did take a, a big step forward. But do we do we think that like he has uh, firmly established this new higher floor or is this going to be, you know, a, a second half surge? We see it so many times. A player plays really well in the second half of one season, but then gets punched around at the start of the next season. Like this, this career is definitely headed in the right direction under Darren Cahill. But just in terms of 2024, it could be a year in which you know we see the rise of a player, and then he gets his teeth kicked in that next year before he then really puts it all together down the line. Uh, we 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 see this progression with plenty of players. So I guess the operative question for Center is: Do you think that he this continues to go up in 2024? Or that do you think that 2024 is going to be a difficult year before we then see him really put more pieces of the puzzle together in 25, 26, and beyond? Yeah, it's gosh. Yeah, I think if I knew the answer to that question, Matt, I would make a lot more money by being able to to bet on stocks or or bet on sports matches than I ever have been able to do. Because there's a couple of players who were at the uh, the tour finals, and in answering your question, I'm going to reference both of those guys, Sasha Zverev and Stefanos Tsitsipas, both of whom I thought were going to kick on and take it to another level. Zverev, after what he did in 2017, winning a couple of Masters tournaments back-to-back there. And Sitsipas, his rise was a little bit later, but for all the world in in 2020, he was, um, 2020-21, he was set up to be the next big thing. And somehow neither of those players really did take it to the next level. And by the next level... Yes, you can get to three, four, five in the world. What you can't do is is be a a number one player in the world for half a year, a year, a year and a half. So Daniel has been a, a world number one, and he's won a major. He's won several Masters tournaments now. Never been a a, a, a potentially dominant number one. Sinner could be but you go back six years Zverev might have been I think Tsitsipas might have been but they never took the the big step forward and the 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 real question is does Sinner have it in him to find that extra gear that takes him from number four up to number two and then potentially to number one or is he going to be a player that, you know, you, you see his name opposite yours in the quarterfinals and you think, oh, this is, you know, I, I, I better stock up on the, uh, the Gatorade and the, uh, the salt tablets for this one. Or you see his name in the quarterfinals and you think, mm, I've, I've, I've got a real shot at the semis here. So I don't know. We also have to look at Daniil Medvedev, uh, you know, a, a really fascinating 2023 season because, you know, it, he took, he suffered that loss to Rafa at the 2022 Australian Open final. And ne- and with just within the, the context of that 2022 season, 
never really recovered or never really seemed to recover from that loss. Now, in 2023, he suffers another tough loss in Australia. And I was certainly thinking, uh-oh, well, we've seen this movie before. It's going to be a rough ride for him this year. But, you know, he actually punched back. He he, he collected some significant wins. He, he makes the semifinals uh, at Wimbledon, something he hadn't done before. He beats Alcaraz in the U.S. Open semifinals to get to the final uh, against Djokovic. But, like, no second major, but lots of important and and I and also memorable match wins that certainly reaffirmed his presence as one of the big dogs on tour. And I'm not, not a big dog in Novak Djokovic's class. I mean, Djokovic really, he really does stand alone. And Alcaraz, of course, doing some really special things uh, as a young tennis player. But like Medvedev's been that number three very solidly. And uh, after Australia, that did not seem like a, like a sure thing. So, you know, you could certainly do a lot worse than Daniil Medvedev has done. He's he's shown some staying power. He's shown some resilience. But again, that major trophy, that second major trophy, uh, which often separates really, really good players from International Tennis Hall of Fame players, that, that, that trophy still hasn't been tracked down. How do you view Danil Medvedev and his progression uh, as a tennis player. I think there's a case for the glass half full. There's a case for the glass uh, half empty. Where where would you come down on that? So Daniel Medvedev, clay masters winner. That's an expression I don't think I was expecting to utter in 2023. But no, he, he lifted the, the trophy in Rome as well as uh, a trophy in Miami, which I think many of us would have said, yep, we could see one of the four Masters uh, thousand titles going to Medvedev this year. But Rome, now that, that, that was a surprise. And uh, as you say, you know, he's, he's not got much of a grasp pedigree either, but he toughed his way through uh, a Pretty exciting quarterfinal against uh, Chris Eubanks, who's been you know one of the Cinderella stories of uh, 2023, and found himself in the semifinals of Wimbledon. So, I think one of the things I'm a bit nervous about with with Daniel is the way that that Novak handled him uh, in the the U.S. Open final, where you kind of, you kind of never really saw him having much of a chance. Now, I think that maybe Novak served and volleyed something like twenty times and won something like eighteen or nineteen of those points. You know, hitting the the slice serve uh, to the deuce, and Daniel standing you know somewhere on Long Island, uh, and then uh, you know trying to get the ball back into play. It it just it just sort of felt like. You know, the old Green Bay pack of sweep, 20 yards in a cloud of dust or something like that for, for Novak. So we'll see. I mean, he, he if he's if he's confident, if he's uh, if he's able just to uh, make things happen from his his comfort place, he'll continue to win tournaments. Does he have another level to go to? I would be surprised, but then you've had players like Stan Varinka and Marin Cilic who don't have who didn't have Daniel's pedigree making runs in their in their late twenties. Um so Daniel's twenty-seven now. These days that's not that old. So he's probably got a you know at least a good six years ahead of him. Uh is would I be staggered if he was number one at the end of 2024 not staggered but i would be surprised if he were one or two all right andrew other players you want to make sure to highlight either from the atp finals or in general uh in this 2023 season and 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 players that you're interested in in terms of looking ahead to 2024 so Holger Runa is 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 a is a big question mark for me. 
he's a, he's a player who already has won a Masters, which he did last last season. Um, he reached uh, the Rome final, losing to Medvedev. Um, was he also in Monte Carlo? I think he 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 went deep in Monte Carlo as well. Um, I don't. Th- I'm trying to remember just off the top of my head. I've got the the screen up in front of me, but I'm not going to click on it at the moment. I th- I think he probably made a final there, um, and he looked like he was progressing quite rapidly, and then had a big wobble in the second half of the season, and has now brought uh, Boris Becker on board. And and Becker has had some success in the past as a coach. So Runa, I see as as one of the talents of his his peer group. And twenty twenty four could be his year, although he's still, shall I say it, like a young Federer. He he's he's a very young Federer. He's still very hot-headed and he's still turning to his box and yelling at his box. And he hasn't yet found a, a, a place of calm when things get tight at five all in, in a third set in a Masters semifinal. So Runa is someone who I, I could certainly see being top three, top four, end of the season and in 2024 and then potentially an absolutely stellar career. Uh, Breakthrough players this year. uh, Us Brits like to have seen Jack Draper doing well, but I think the the other real standout uh, breakout player, at least for me, I'm interested in your choices, but Ben Shelton, um, you know, absolutely uh, came through, Again, another of those players who seems to blow hot and cold, but when he blows hot, you you, you don't want him on the other side of the net. What about you, Matt? I, I think I think Ben Shelton is it. Like you know, making a major semifinal, and you can see the big game there. And I'm always interested in in those kinds of players. You know, like Denis Shapovalov is a good comparison. You know, like you you can see the potential. You know, if he can just harness his shots. There's such a weight of shot. There, there, there's so much natural ball striking ability there. But can you put the mental game in place? Can you learn how to pick your spots? Like that's something that guys such as uh, Joe Wilfred Sanga would, would struggle with uh, so often. Uh, and you've seen talented players such as Yerzy Janowitz, uh, you know, huge game, but I couldn't make it last uh, on tour. Uh, and, and, and this is part of a much, I love looking at these players, Andrew, because it's part of a wider discussion of sport, right? You know, that we, we, in, in, uh, international football, you know, there's the Brazil is, you know, Jogo Bonita, the beautiful game, you know, the team that plays beautiful free flowing offense. Can that kind of team or that kind of individual athlete, can you play the beautiful game and win? Like that's why Roger Federer is such a uh, an inspiration for so many fans is because he played the beautiful game and won. Like he he did not play Brad Gilbert tennis. He did not win ugly. I mean he he learned how to win ugly, and that was certainly important in his career. You know, Federer learned how to become a bulldog, as you are very much aware. <laughs> but but like Federer, what is the epitome of the beautiful winner? And in sports, people, you know, fans love to see that beautiful winner. You can play an aesthetically pleasing style, an offense first style, and win consistently. I mean, you you need to have enough defense, like you need to have enough uh, conservatism at times. But can you fundamentally play a beautiful game and win? And and that that's brought to the discussion with Shapovalov and Ben Shelton is the latest incarnation of that. You could also look at Chris Eubanks. Similarly, you know, playing high voltage, attacking tennis, but can you rein it in enough over the course of a season, you know, and, and, and make enough percentage shots? You know, our friend Skip Schwartzman uh, always talks about it's not about the shots you make, but it's the shots that you don't miss. You know, making balls, keeping them in play, and walking that fine line between aggression and 
percentage tennis, but not just so much making the attacking shots, but not missing uh, the balls, you know, that you need to keep in the court. So yeah, Ben Shelton, definitely uh, someone for me to watch uh, in in 2024 in terms of uh, what he brings to the table. Any any last uh, observations, Andrew, anything else that we haven't covered, but that we should at least give some mention to before we close down the show? I don't know. I think I think ATP tennis has more going for it in 2024 than I thought it had in 2022, let's say. I think that we, we really do have a crop of very interesting younger players now. Uh, we've got one older player, 36, who dominated the tour. Oh, gosh, it's come back to me. That that Spanish player who, who used to do quite well at the start of the season <laughs> and then uh, and then never did that with, oh, gosh, Rafael Nadal. Oh, yeah. You know, so, yeah, so he was absent for nearly all of 2023. So I think another storyline for 2024 is is Rafael Nadal able to be competitive um we don't know the answer to that question we don't know if he will come back play some matches sort of the way that Federer did in uh 2022 and uh, no sorry it was 2021 was when he played some matches and really wasn't the player he had been had surgery again came back uh for one labor cup doubles match and and that was the end of obviously a stellar career with nadal in 2024 he hasn't said for certain that 2024 would be his last season, but I think you know, many observers are thinking, is he going to be able to put in a solid enough base to play on clay, to be competitive in some of the tournaments, including Roland Garros? And then I think a lot of people are, are hoping that they'll have a chance to see him play uh, at the, the Paris Olympics with Paris obviously being the site of many of his his greatest triumphs. So that's one that's one person we hadn't mentioned, obviously because of my senior moment and not being able to think of who that young Spanish player was. But no longer as young as he was, but um one of the the jewels of the ATP for nearly twenty years. If 2024 brings some joy to Nadal fans, those of us who haven't been Nadal fans all of us, all of our, his career, aren't going to uh, be too sad about that. Uh, we won't begrudge anyone who's enjoyed watching Rafael Nadal play tennis, seeing him enjoy competing again in 2024. I think that's the perfect note on which to end our show because this is a ATP finals review. And in many ways we're putting the 2023 season to bed and we get that, we get that, that look, just that brief look ahead at 2024. We'll obviously have a 2024 standalone preview uh, later in this off season, but like this was kind of the final major note for 2023. So like a great, just a uh, uh, segue, you know, and, and Janice, uh, you know, January, uh, from the root, Janice, you know, looking at one face and, and looking back, one face looking forward, kind of the perfect uh, thematic note uh, on which to close our show. Andrew Burton, he's the consultant and in-house analyst that, that we keep turning to uh, on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. You want to read his deep dive on Grigor Dimitrov and ATP generations and the value of match wins across different ATP eras. Do check out that piece. Also a reminder to listen to Sakib's podcast with Yvonne Lendl. Great stuff at the end of the year from Tennis with an Accent. And of course, we'll be covering the Australian Open, as we always do, in early January. 
I will I will be more active. I'm absolutely buried in other work responsibilities right now, but we'll definitely be on the job, on the scene uh, for the Australian Open. Uh, we want to wish our American listeners a very happy Thanksgiving. We want to wish our worldwide audience uh, the very best uh, toward the end of the year, uh, that you have a very safe uh, uh, season, wherever you may be. Uh, Andrew Burton, thanks for joining our end of the year and end of the ATP Finals uh, review show here on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt.